Welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this week's episode of People, Places, Planet. My name is Sarah Backer, and I'm your host. Today, we are releasing an episode from our Ground Truth series with our partners at Beverage and Diamond, focused on environmental justice. Beverage and Diamond associate Lauren Karam will meet Stella Keck and Andrew Shapiro of Rue Environmental Consulting to discuss cumulative impact analysis regulations. Before they begin, allow me to set the stage. Environmental justice is a concept at the crossroads of environmental protection and social justice dating back to the civil rights movement. It is defined by the Environmental Protection Agency as the, quote, fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of race, color, national origin, or income, with respect to the development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies, end quote. Interest and urgency in advancing environmental justice, or EJ, has gained new momentum in recent years. The Biden-Harris administration has placed an unprecedented federal focus on environmental justice using a whole-of-government approach, including issuing executive orders demanding accountability and action from a broad list of federal agencies. In addition, a growing list of states continue to develop, implement, and enforce EJ-focused legislation, accelerated by the intensity at the federal level. In today's episode of Ground Truth, we will have a focused conversation about new regulations in Massachusetts involving cumulative impact analyses for air permits issues in areas near EJ communities. We will also discuss how cumulative impacts are being addressed by EPA and other states. Thank you, Sarah. I'm Lauren Karam, an attorney at Beverage and Diamond. I'm very excited to be here today with our two wonderful guests to discuss this topic. Before we dive in, a little bit about our guests. Stella Keck holds a BS in biochemistry and cell biology from Rice University and an MPH from Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. She is a senior scientist at Rue who specializes in climate change and the potential for adverse human health outcomes, cumulative impact assessments of chemical and non-chemical stressors, toxicological and epidemiological evaluations, complex statistical and spatial data analyses, and comprehensive literature reviews. Andrew Shapiro has a BS in environmental engineering with a minor in economics from Tufts University and an MPH in environmental health from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. He is a senior engineer and he specializes in air pollution issues for industrial, legal, municipal, and nonprofit clients. His work includes air permitting and compliance, air dispersion modeling, statistical analysis, and human health risk assessment. Thank you both so much for joining us today. So to begin, could you each tell us a little bit about your organization and your work there? I will start with Stella. Yeah, so I guess generally, Rue is an environmental consulting and management firm. At Rue, we offer many different types of services, including traditional engineering work, remediation support, brownfields, due diligence work, 
health and safety, and many more. But we also do risk management work. So we have an ESG practice area. We have a bunch of in-house economists. So they do economic analyses. We do insurance support. And Indra and I specifically work primarily in the human health risk sector. So we work on toxic tort cases. We obviously do a lot of risk communication and community engagement. And more recently, we've been looking at climate risk as well. Andrew, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I'll just add a little bit more specifically. Lately, we've been doing a lot of air pollution impact studies and air pollution source apportionment. A lot of that's been related to PM 2.5, but we're looking at other contaminants as well. And Stella and I actually just published a paper recently about PM 2.5 source apportionment. Great. And could you tell us a little bit about your background of, of how you got to where you are today? Let's start with Stella again. Yeah, so I have my MPH in environmental health and more specifically climate change and health. And I came to RU uh, almost about five years ago now, and I've have been wanting to do environmental justice work for as long as I got my MPH. And RU has actually been doing environmental justice work for a long time. It wasn't called EJ work, but the rise of all these new EJ regulations and this renewed focus on the topic has more kind of clearly defined environmental justice as a practice area for us. And historically, with RU, since we deal with a lot of heavily contaminated sites, there's always going to be a community aspect to that. So there's always going to be a community that's impacted, unfortunately, by that contamination. And so for a long, long time, RU has been in this sphere, but it's more and more a recent development that we're doing EJ-related regulation work, EJ-related communications with communities and stuff like that. Great. What about you, Andrew? Yeah, so I got my career started doing air permitting and air quality analyses, mostly on the industrial side. So I would look at how much of a certain contaminant is being emitted from a facility. And then I went back to school and got my master's in public health to look a little bit more at the community and the human health side of air pollution issues. And so these new EJ regulations are actually like a really nice combination of those two skills because you not only have to look at what is being emitted from a facility, but also the community impacts. And it kind of requires that balance of engineering as well as human health and community health. Great. So today we're here to talk about the Massachusetts cumulative impact analysis regulations that are currently proposed and set to be final any day. As of the time we're recording right now, they're not final, but we are expecting them any day. So can you give our audience a brief summary of the Massachusetts Cumulative Impact Analysis Regulations? Sure. So Massachusetts has proposed new cumulative impact analysis regulations, and they're set to be housed in the air permitting regulations. So right now, some air emissions projects, whether it's a new facility or an add-on to a facility, require what's called a comprehensive plan application or a CPA, and we'll be using that term quite a bit during this podcast. So most people who work in air permitting are probably familiar with CPAs, at least in Massachusetts. This is an application generally required for a larger facility or for larger facility emissions increase. And so the cumulative impact analysis is going to be a new requirement associated with a CPA. So it's adding new requirements to facilities that already had to do air permitting and that are also near environmental justice communities. 
but it's not requiring new permitting for facilities that didn't already have to do permitting, and it's not requiring new requirements for facilities that are a little bit smaller or that propose smaller emissions increases. Additionally, EPA and state agencies have often made decisions based on human health risk from environmental factors, such as air pollution concentrations. So people who do CPAs now probably know that you have to do air dispersion modeling, but we also know that there are other factors that affect people's health. So environmental factors might actually only be a small portion of what affects people's health and quality of life. You know, if you study public health, there are a lot of different disciplines of public health, and environmental health is just one of those. So we know that these environmental and non-environmental factors are not evenly distributed throughout the population. And so this is where environmental justice comes into play. So the cumulative impact assessments aim to aggregate the effects of exposure to chemical stressors, like air pollutants, as well as non-chemical stressors, such as social determinants of health or extreme weather that could be due to climate change. And so it's important to consider all of these factors together, chemical and non-chemical, in overburdened communities because adverse health effects can arise from disproportionate environmental and social conditions and exposure to multiple stressors. Got it. Thanks, Andrew. So, Stella, could you walk us through the steps of a CIA? Definitely. In the words of the proposed CIA, it basically requires the air permit applicant to perform enhanced public outreach to and involvement with EJ populations. In addition to that, it also requires assessment of existing community conditions. And then finally, an analysis of the cumulative impacts from the proposed project that's either reapplying or applying for a new air permit. And we'll talk more about each of the steps in detail, but the community engagement and public notice step could include multiple forms of outreach depending on the community that you're dealing with, such as applicants are encouraged to use social media platforms, attend community meetings, perhaps going door to door, utilizing community groups, churches, high school groups to disseminate the information and to disseminate the public notice. And importantly, those notifications are supposed to be done in the major languages that are spoken by the community. So for example, if you have a majority Spanish-speaking community, the public notice should be available both in English and then also in Spanish. The assessment of the current conditions portion of the CAA includes assessment of environmental indicators, public health indicators, and also socioeconomic indicators. So that assessment will include the analysis of air quality and dispersion modeling, which I'm sure Andrew can talk about in, in much more greater detail than I can, air toxics, risk characterization, and then finally kind of wrap that all up in a large-scale evaluation of how the proposed project could impact those existing conditions. And then following the submittal of the CIA report, the MassDEP will review the CIA and CPA and issue a proposed decision that will then have a 60-day public comment period before a final decision is actually made. In addition, there are a couple of screening tools available for an applicant to use, and you can go online and use the MassDEP web application called the Cumulative Impact Analysis Mapping and Data Application. Um, and this helps each applicant identify if they're in or near an EJ population. So the tool allows the applicant to enter an address, and then you can draw a one or a five mile radius around your facility. And that helps you identify sensitive groups such as schools, elderly housing, 
public housing developments, and also other major emitting facilities in the area. And then you can generate a report of the various environmental indicators from that actual mapping tool online. So it's a really great, very useful tool for applicants and consultants and for anyone involved in the CIA process. You can also export the block group IDs. So any block group that your facility may impact, so within that one or five mile radius, you can export these identification numbers. And then you can search up in these mass DEP provided tables and look up health information for the community, so asthma rates, air quality information, climate data, you know, flood risk, et cetera, stuff like that. Great, thanks, Stella. Andrew, could you talk a bit about the air quality dispersion modeling as part of the CIA process? Sure, so the new CIA process is gonna look at the impact of facility emissions on neighboring communities in two different ways. The first is going to be for criteria pollutants. So these are pollutants with National Ambient Air Quality Standards, or NACs as we call them in the air permitting world. And these are pollutants like ozone, particulate matter, sulfur dioxide, nitrogen dioxide, volatile organic compounds, carbon monoxide, and lead. And the second class of contaminants is going to be air toxics which is a newly defined air pollution term in the mass regs. These are pretty similar to hazardous air pollutants for those familiar with the federal regs, but mass DEP defines this new category as any air contaminant for which mass DEP has published inhalation toxicity values or that mass DEP has determined to be toxic or potentially toxic to human health. Now, MassDEP is going to treat these two different pollutant categories in two different ways. So up until now, modeling of criteria pollutants has already been a part of the CPA running process. Up until now, you weren't necessarily required to do air modeling. MassDEP did have the authority to request modeling, but that wasn't always the case. Now it seems like criteria pollutant modeling is going to be required as part of all CPAs. MassDEP has also included language on significant increases in vehicle emission to be included in the models. This is a little bit different from traditional air modeling. Not all air models are going to include vehicle emissions. Vehicles are just covered under different federal regulations, but it seems like they will be included in the modeling of criteria pollutants under these new CIAs. I think that's a really interesting point, Andrew, because for a lot of EJ communities, vehicle traffic is a very visible change to your community if a new industry comes in and you see, you know, all of a sudden there's 20 trucks that drive down your street. So I think that aspect of the requirement or the consideration of vehicle emissions is really important, especially from the community standpoint. Yeah, and interesting that you mentioned the vehicle emissions, Stella, because we're actually still waiting for some guidance on how to incorporate the vehicle emissions into the air modeling. When the draft regulations first came out, MassDEP said that they were going to have two different things they wanted to follow up on. One was the air toxics risk assessment, and then the second was the vehicle emissions. I mentioned the term significant increase in vehicle emissions. That term hasn't been defined yet, as far as I'm aware, and I believe MassDEP is still planning on coming out with guidance on how to handle vehicle emissions. Got it. So Stella, 
What does this mean for EJ communities? I think for us that we've noticed here at Rue, the most important thing for these types of regulations that are starting to be finalized is this is the first opportunity for many of these communities to be able to express their concerns and to raise issues that they've been dealing with probably for many years. So the community engagement aspect is really a main highlight of these changes. And specifically with the Massachusetts CIA regulations that are coming out, the communities have the chance to bring forward things that may have been overlooked. And it's now on the industry applying for the permit to investigate and address those issues. So it's super important that these communities feel like they're being heard and that change is possible. Beyond that, the CIA will hopefully, you know, increase overall awareness around potential pollution sources and also the general concept of environmental justice and, you know, environmental justice communities through increased data availability, all these amazing accessible mapping tools, screening tools, and also health outcomes resources and health research as well. So, you know, ultimately the goal is to reduce these disproportionate exposures and hopefully reduce negative health outcomes for these communities. And it'll be interesting to see how this process ultimately will decide whether or not these permits are approved or denied or if they need to be modified. So that'll be something really interesting to follow in the future. Another, just quickly, just one you know interesting component of all this, environmental justice communities and populations are often defined in slightly different ways, depending on who is doing the defining. So if it's the state or if it's a federal level tool or resource, some of these communities may or may not be identified as an EJ community, and they may or may not be identified to fall under one of these regulations or to qualify for certain funding opportunities. So the actual definition of an EJ population is super dependent on the regulation that's being passed or the spatial level that's you know looking at it. So for example, in Massachusetts, they look at income level, percent minority, English language proficiency, or a combination of those metrics. But other tools in other states or at the federal level, they may be defining an EJ population using totally different metrics. So for example, they might incorporate education level that's attained or you know, percent over 65 years of age, or they might just be using the same types of indicators, but slightly different metric levels to identify those populations. So moving forward, is just an interesting thought to see because of the differences in how these populations are defined, who's going to be impacted by these regulations and potential funding and other resources like that. Thanks, Stella. So Andrew, how do you think the new CIA regulations will affect air permit applicants in Massachusetts? That's a great question. So currently there are about 125 major emitters in Massachusetts. Outside of the major emitters, CPAs are generally filed for pretty big projects. You know, it's a pretty big boiler, for example, that would have to be installed to trigger a CPA. So currently, MassDEP receives about an average of 30 CPA applications per year. These are from a combination of major and non-major sources. And not all CPAs are going to require a CIA under the proposed amendments. For example, if a facility is not within five miles of an EJ population, they're not going to have to do a CIA. So in reality, it's going to be even fewer than 30 CPA applications per year that also require a CIA. So this isn't going to create a huge number of CIAs or a huge regulatory burden outside of the folks that are already 
doing CPAs. I think that the timing is maybe going to be a big aspect of the new regulations. As Stella had mentioned earlier, there are new community engagement timeframes that are required when doing a CIA. From my air permitting experience, timing is typically a very important part of the permitting process. The facility operations and the environmental team maybe sometimes aren't communicating about the timelines of their projects. So the operations people, you know, want to get a boiler started up ASAP so that they can start production of their product, for example. And now this is going to add increased timelines and increased timelines before you can bring your new boiler on site. And it's also going to create new lags in terms of the permitting process. Now facilities will have to submit a notice of the proposed project 60 days before filing a CPA. And there's also a 60-day comment period after the submittal of the CPA. So my recommendation would be to just bring in the environmental team early in the process to make sure that you're allowing enough time for the permitting. You want to be filing the permit well ahead of when you actually want to be starting up your new emissions unit. Got it. Yeah, I can see how the timing can be really important throughout the process. So talking a minute, you know, beyond Massachusetts and, and in the bigger picture, Stella, can you talk a little bit about how the Massachusetts regulations compare to what EPA is doing in the cumulative impact space? Yes, definitely. And it's super interesting because obviously the Massachusetts regulations are specific to air permitting. And, you know, EPA for a long, long, long time has provided specific guidance and tools and regulations on how to conduct traditional human health risk assessments. And in those risk assessments, you do a quote unquote cumulative risk assessment. However, it's traditionally just involved chemical exposures in say groundwater, soil or air, possibly dust, maybe even your food. But these traditionally have not incorporated non-chemical stressors like we were talking about before, or exposures beyond potentially a qualitative analysis of those. So more recently, EPA has started to attempt to conduct a more truly cumulative impact assessment. And oftentimes you might hear the term, the total environment framework or the concept of double jeopardy as referring to a risk assessment that incorporates both the chemical and also the non-chemical stressors and exposures. And I guess here, I'll just take a second to give some examples of non-chemical stressors, because it's not something that in our field is talked about very often, but non-chemical stressors can include climate change related events. So extreme weather events, flood risk, or it can include access or lack of access to healthcare, lack of access to childcare, transportation challenges, lack of green space, and obviously economic challenges as well. So there's a whole wide variety of non-chemical stressors in your day-to-day -day life that needs to be included in the total environment framework when you're considering cumulative health impacts long-term. So while the concept and I guess practice of cumulative impact or cumulative risk assessments isn't necessarily new for EPA, it is fairly widely recognized that this cumulative impact assessment needs to be strengthened and improved in order to be the most impactful, most efficient. Currently, the EPA has been doing a bunch of kind of internal reviews and have flagged certain issues, such as lack of communication across EPA departments or agencies. And it's clear that historically it's been a much more siloed process. But within the last couple of years, there have been some big changes to EPA and EPA's cumulative risk assessment, primarily 
mainly due to several executive orders from the Biden administration. So those executive orders have provided a framework for environmental justice actions generally, but also include the use of a cumulative impact assessment. And that also helps direct a lot of funding and research in this area. So as I said, one of the major steps that EPA has taken is to invest in research in cumulative impact assessment. So the EPA Office of Research and Development, ORD, has directed funding into cumulative impacts. And generally for this type of research, they've identified a handful of different areas, such as identifying the wide array of stressors, so just the process of identification and characterization of these chemical and non-chemical stressors, then quantifying and qualifying the impacts. So improving the analytical analyses of both the quantitative and qualitative data and how you kind of combine both those two very different types of data sets. And then next is research just into data generation. So both temporally and also spatially, how do we generate useful data for all these different types of indicators that we're interested in? And then also on the health side, understanding the biological mechanism and kind of the overall lifetime impact to all these very different types of stressors, environmental, non-environmental stressors. And then ideally understanding how to implement efficient and successful policies to reduce these types of stressors. Additionally, EPA and other agencies, which we can talk about as well, have invested in a lot of environmental justice screening tools. So this is kind of the first major step at trying to quantify a truly cumulative impact and identifying these EJ communities. So EPA has their EJ screen, which derives environmental justice indices, which combine environmental exposures such as particulate matter or proximity to a Superfund site. You combine those environmental exposures with a bunch of socioeconomic factors. And this is interesting because it generates this index for each individual environmental exposure type, but it doesn't yet weight all of the environmental exposures together. So you can generate a report that kind of indicates which census block groups are in the top percentile of all these different environmental indices, but it's not quite at the point where it's generating a true cumulative impact score. And realistically, it's because that's a really, really hard thing to do. And it's something that is very, very site-specific. So I don't see a lot of these screening tools, they really are screening tools, eventually developing true cumulative scores. That would have to be done by environmental professionals, the community itself in combination with community to figure out how to weight those different stressors into a cumulative score. Yeah, so I guess that's really what EPA has been doing. But there are a bunch of other independent researchers and other agencies that have also been doing a lot of work in this area. You know, a bunch of researchers have been publishing and recommending different methodologies on how to weight these different stressors. Like I said before, EPA hasn't yet come forward with a true methodology of do you weight the environmental stressors more than the, than the non-environmental stressors. So there are a bunch of researchers looking into this and proposing all these different methodologies. And in general, you need to balance kind of two different things. So how do you weight the score based on how certain you are that this stressor will contribute to a health impact? But you also need to balance that with incorporating the ability of the state or the government to actually address the causes. So how feasible is it to fix this problem? Do we have the technology 
to feasibly make an improvement in this area. And so there are a bunch of things that these researchers are trying to consider when coming up with these different methodologies in order to develop a cumulative impact score. Got it. Thanks, Stella. So now that we've talked about Massachusetts and about what's happening at EPA and other federal agencies, are you seeing similar requirements in other states? Massachusetts is definitely at the forefront of the environmental justice regulations, but it's by no means alone. So New Jersey and New York have come out with similar rules as well. The New Jersey regulations are actually already in effect, so they're a little bit ahead of Massachusetts in terms of time frame. Like the Massachusetts regulations, the New Jersey regs are targeting Title V major facilities, but they're also targeting a few specific source types as well. Landfills is just one example. The New Jersey regulations are similarly interested in environmental justice and cumulative impact analysis, and it also includes a quantitative risk assessment of air emissions. So that's similar to the air toxics analysis that you have to do in Massachusetts. New Jersey is also requiring a community involvement period, and it's also including a community hearing. So in New Jersey, you need to provide notice of the hearing 60 days in advance, and the public comment period then has to remain open for at least 30 days after the completion of the public hearing. So you have a similarly long kind of waiting period before you're going to be able to get your air permit approval. Now, in New York, they haven't been formally coded as regulations yet, but Eventual regulations will be incorporated into the State Environmental Quality Act, also known as CECRA, and they will be incorporating environmental justice into CECRA analyses. A new facility is going to have to determine whether their project requires an environmental impact statement, which is the ultimate work product of a CECRA analysis. So now EJ is going to be a part of the determination if an environmental impact statement is required for a project, and it must be a part of that environmental impact statement if the environmental impact statement is required. Interestingly, this isn't just related to air permits, so it's a little bit different from Massachusetts in that sense. CECRA currently requires an environmental impact statement for things like construction of new residential units, and other construction projects that meet certain thresholds. The sale of land by a state or local agency is another category that's included in CECRA and for which an environmental impact assessment might be required. And then, Stella, do you want to talk a little bit about the Cal Enviro screen? Yeah, definitely. So California doesn't yet have a you know, finalized, formalized regulation regarding environmental justice cumulative impacts or something similar to New York, New Jersey, but they do have their Cal Enviro screen, which is another screening tool similar to the EJ screen, but this is California specific. So it identifies disadvantaged communities and areas affected by many different sources of pollution and utilizes that environmental data, health data, socioeconomic data to produce a score for each census tract in the state. And because each census tract gets a score, you can compare within the state across the census tracts and rank the census tracts based on need. 
So this tool has been used to identify these disadvantaged communities, and they can then be targeted for additional investment. For example, proceeds from the state's cap-and-trade program gets invested in these disadvantaged communities. It also allows other state agencies to prioritize environmental and human health risk assessments and enforcement and compliance in those areas. So it's not the same as the Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey regulations, but it is, you know, California is doing a lot in this EJ sphere and trying to help support those communities as well. Thanks, Stella. So this has been a great conversation. And before we close out today's episode, do you have any parting thoughts for our listeners? We could start with Andrew. Sure. So I would say for facilities and construction projects and anything that might cause some sort of emissions increase in a community, just be aware that federal and state actions are coming. There's increased attention on cumulative impacts. There's a lot of EPA-funded research. It's being incorporated into air permitting. There are all sorts of screening tools that Stella has mentioned today. And there's also increased data availability. These regulations are designed to encourage partnerships between communities, government, and other stakeholders to look for options that can promote community health while also allowing for emissions projects to continue to move forward. Cumulative impact assessments are also going to require collaboration between communities and consultants and government agencies, and a whole host of specialties are going to be required to do these analyses. We're going to need input from communities, as well as technical expertise in engineering, human health risk assessment, and going to require collaboration with social scientists as well. Great. And turning to Stella, any closing thoughts for today? Well, it's hard to follow Andrew there, but I would definitely just echo everything he says. And in general, I think we're seeing more and more environmental justice related projects, a bunch of work in this area, and it's on both sides of the aisle. So both of our private and public clients have come forward to us asking for support in this area. It's going to be impacting everyone. So I definitely think it's a very interesting field. I'm really excited about the future regulations, future changes that will continue to make it easier and easier for these communities to get help and to hopefully improve their situation. So just thank you so much for having us on the podcast and to talk about this. It's a super important, very relevant topic to be discussing right now. So yeah, this has been really great. Absolutely. And thank you both for joining today. Thanks, Lauren. Yes. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.